Cool. Um, so it gives me enormous pleasure to welcome Judith Byfield to the seminar. Uh, Judith's a, a, a long friend of uh, uh, Oxford and, and African studies. Um, we were reminiscing that um, very sadly the last time that we were together at a seminar um, in Oxford was at one of Georg Deutsch's um, seminars. Uh, Georg was a former colleague, for those of you who don't know, um, who died not long ago. Um, uh, but it's wonderful to welcome uh, Judith to the seminar. Uh, she's a professor of history at Cornell um, and leading expert on um, kind of social and economic history of women uh, in West Africa, specifically uh, Western Nigeria. Um, her first book is a classic. Um, it's called uh, The Bluest Hands, uh, A Social and Economic History of Women Indigo Dyers in Western Nigeria. Um, and her work has been based on a very long-term engagement uh, with women and communities around Abiyakuta um, in southwestern Nigeria. Um, so she's moved from questions of uh, labor and um, uh, textiles um, and um, gender relations to um, current research um, that's uh, looking at uh, women and taxation, uh, nationalist politics, um, through and just after uh, the Second World War. Um, and it's almost as if we've planned this in relation to the core course one um, uh, <laughs> curriculum, but she's particularly interested in working on um, tax revolts um, and tax riots um, for, uh, that were led by women. Um, uh, in addition to her wonderful scholarship, um, Judith has been um, the president of the ASA in the US um, from 2010 to 2011. Um, I could go on. Um, Judith today is going to be talking about her uh, recent research, um, and the title of her talk is Gender, Spectacle and Nation Making in Post-Second World War Nigeria. Judith, you're very welcome. Thank you, David. And it's so nice to be back here again. As I mentioned to him, my last visit was actually 10 years ago. Um, so at the same time that things look very familiar, I also feel a little lost walking around these days. Um, this talk is based on um, a manuscript that is currently in press at Ohio University, and it's entitled The Great Upheaval, Women and Nation in Post-War Nigeria. Um, I did have taxes in the title, and a lot of people didn't like that, so excellent taxes. Still, The Great Upheaval examines a local struggle that became a national effort to shape the nationalist agenda in, in post-World War II Nigeria. It focuses on a protracted protest against a tax increase launched in 1947 by the Abeokuta Women's Union and its president, Fumileo Ransom Kuti. The revolt is well known in Nigerian popular history, and many people outside of Nigeria were intro introduced to it through Wole Shoyinka's memoir, Ake, the Year of Childhood, as well as the Broadway play um, based on Ransom Kuti's son, Fela. So by the time the women's protest ended in July 1948, they had forced the traditional king and sole native authority, Alake Ademola, into exile. An Egba interim council that included four appointed women, one of whom was Mrs. Ransom Kuti, replaced the old native authority council. The council's first official acts included the abolition of taxes on women and an increase of the flat tax on men. In 1949, Abeokuta held its first free election. Um, <clears throat> and at the inauguration of the Egba Central Council now, on June 30th, 1949, the resident declared that it was a momentous occasion. Um, and I would also add a little footnote that it was also momentous 
for the rest of Nigeria as well, because this really is the first election in which both men and women are voting. Elections had happened in Lagos before, but women weren't allowed to vote. So the tax revolt was the beginning, though, rather than the end of a process. For Mrs. Ransom Kuti built on the success of the Abiyakuta Women's Union to launch a national women's organization, the Nigerian Women's Union, in 1949. By 1953, the NWU had branches throughout Nigeria, thus knitting together a wide cross-section of women's organizations to present a uniform set of issues and concerns to the newly formed political parties. Now, I argue that several things make this tax revolt significant. One, it was sandwiched between a pair of strikes that many contemporaries and scholars subsequently credit with galvanizing the nationalist struggle in Nigeria. First, the Lagos General Strike of 1945, and the Enugu coal miners' strike in 1949. Now, most studies of this period provide a general picture of the economic stress men and women faced across the country, but they are most revealing about the conditions of urban working class men. Therefore, an analysis of a revolt conceived and led by women enhances the picture substantially for it reveals the shared but yet distinctive ways in which the continued economic crisis affected women across the socioeconomic spectrum. Analysis of the tax revolt also refines our understanding of the colonial state and the gender dimensions of colonial tax policy. From its inception, Nigeria's tax system was not uniform. When colonial officials created the tax structure, they incorporated local tax systems or fee structures that resembled a tax. Typically, women did not pay a tax. Um, in fact, in many instances, women served as a measure of men's wealth for the number of wives a man had determined his tax rate. However, when officials imposed taxation on Abiyakuta in 1918, they taxed women independently of men because they perceived Egba women as wealthy traders, and many of them were, in fact. Thus, women's anomalous position as independent taxpayers helps to explain why women featured so prominently in anti-colonial nationalist politics in this town. Finally, the tax revolt helps us to better understand the relationship between gender and nationalism in Nigeria. Women use taxation as a platform from which to challenge their political marginalization. They combine demands for economic amelioration and political um, participation, demands that resonated with both nationalists and wage earners. These demands also reflected Ransom Kuti's direct and indirect engagement with labor unionists and nationalists. Together, Ransom Kuti and the Women's Union illuminate ways in which gender-informed nationalist strategies, actions, and thought, as well as the ways in which women helped to construct the nation. Today, I will focus my comments on how women contributed to a reimagining of the nation within <coughs> and beyond Abeokuta in post-war Nigeria. Um, and in order to best illuminate these women's efforts to reimagine nation, I contrast two significant political events in the town's history. First is the town's centenary that was celebrated in 1930, and the second is the Women's Union's Thanksgiving celebration that followed the tax revolt. And I argue that by juxtaposing these events, um, they provide a more nuanced understanding of how the idea of nation and women's place in it evolved in the first half of the 20th century. 
So just to give you a sense where Nigeria is, you can see on the map that it's in the western um, part of the country here. Today it's the capital of Ogun State. Um, but Abiyakuti, which literally means under the rock, was founded around 1830. Depending on who you look at, some say 1829, others 1830. But it was comprised mostly of Egba and Ogu refugees whose original towns were destroyed during the political instability caused by the collapse of the Oyo Empire. These refugees recreated their hometowns. As a result, Abiyakutu was made up of approximately 150 townships that spread out beyond Olumo Rock. Um, and these rocks are part of the, one of the things that historians have suggested was that the town was set up under these rocks because of the security issues that from the top of the rocks, you can see an extensive area. Um, I took this in 1988, um, and this is the view from the top of those rocks. Now, the town was organized under four provinces. Each province recognized a king. The government also included the Ogboni, the civil arm of government that acted as a check on the power of the kings, and the Ologun, the military chiefs. Now, Abiyakutu was also one of the earliest centers of missionary activity in Nigeria. Within the first decade of the town's um, establishment, Saros, and these were Yorubas who were rescued from the slave ships and then um, taken to Sierra Leone, they began returning to Yoruba land. The first Saros arrived in Abiyakuta in 1839 and soon requested the presence of missionaries. Their requests paved the way for the Church Missionary Society to establish in Abiyakuta what would be the first permanent mission station in the future Nigeria. The paramount chiefs received the Saros and the missionaries warmly because they brought critical resources, things such as access to the European traders, but also access to guns and ammunitions necessary for the continued um, um, sort of con security issues and wars that um, lasted throughout the 19th century. Primary schools began as early as the 1860s, and the first newspaper was actually launched in 1860. So as a result, Abiyakuta became the ancestral home of many of the first generation of literate Nigerians. Now, the Abiyakuta Grammar School, of which Reverend Ransom Kuti was the um, headmaster after 1932, this school was established in 1908. It was the first independent secondary school in Nigeria, which meant that it was not a school founded by a mission society or by the colonial government. In fact, residents of the town from all backgrounds raised the funds to begin the school. Abiyakuta's political history is also distinctive within the larger history of British colonialism in Nigeria. Educated Egba, based in Lagos, helped the chiefs to craft a treaty in which Lagos, the Lagos government recognized Abiyakuta as a self-governing kingdom while the other Yoruba city-states were brought under British control. Under the government of the Egba United Government, led by Alake Badebo, the bureaucracy and a bureaucracy of mission-educated men, the town maintained its independence until 1914. The Lagos government used a political crisis in the town in 1914 to argue that the Alake was not in control and thus abrogated the treaty. And it was only at that point that the town then was fully incorporated into the amalgamated Nigeria. For residents of Abiyakuta and Lagos, the EUG had been a highly valued expression of national identity and sovereignty. And people were crushed when Lord Lugard abrogated the treaty. They experienced even greater pain when a tax revolt erupted in 1918, <coughs> just six months after its implementation, 
And after Lugard had assured the colonial government there would not have been resistance to it. Nonetheless, the colonial government went out of its way to create a spectacle, in fact, of those who resisted colonial rule and taxation. The rebels had destroyed the symbols of the colonial state, such as courthouses, the railway, and tele telegraph lines. So the troops destroyed houses and farms and massacred hundreds of people. Bodies were piled up in heaps for public view. And this colonial violence was for consumption in or public consumption in order to reinforce Britain's hegemony now over the town. So the centenary in 1930 assumed political significance for multiple parties. For Alake Adamola, who succeeded Badebo, it provided an, an opportunity to showcase Abiyakuta's modernity. Um, and that included things like roads, electricity, and piped water in the town. And we can talk about the significance of this later on. He would argue that Abiyakuta was actually far ahead of the rest of Nigeria. It was being held back by the rest of the country and so should regain its sovereignty. He commissioned several histories to be written, and two, in fact, were written by British-trained Egbe lawyers, um, Ladipo Shalanke, who many people know was central to the founding of WASU, the West African Students' Union, and Adebisin Folarin, who also trained in London. And they supported the claims for Abiyakuta's um, independence, as well as the argument that the Alake, though technically the king of Ake province, was historically the center of the town's political power. But the colonial government also had its own reasons for investing in the centenary celebration. In spite of the economic dependence, the colonial government set aside something in the range of about 11,000 pounds, um, both to construct um, Centenary Hall, but also for the festivities itself. And for them, this was an opportunity to showcase the efficacy of British colonial rule. The celebration stretched over nine days from October 26, 1930 to November 2nd, um, with performances, lectures, dances, and religious celebrations. Three years of planning went into the construction of Centenary Hall. Um, and this was a picture done in uh, 2014. Centenary Hall still exists. And we can talk a little bit about it later on. It is estimated that 400,000 people visited Abiyakuta over the course of the celebrations. The colonial government even granted vacation to Egba workers on the Nigerian railway so that they could return home for the events. People brought cloths specifically designed for the celebration. Um, Reverend Ransom Kuti wrote words for an Egba national anthem in which he traced the idea of an Egba nation back to their original homestead, but suggested that Egba nationalism only really bloomed in Abiyakuta. The centenary also became an opportunity to mark the town's national heroes. The resident B.W. McPherson unveiled a cenotaph which was created in the memory of the national heroes, mostly the military leaders of the 19th century, um, those who brought Abi the Egbato Abiyakuta and then um, secured its sovereignty. On October 28th, when they officially opened Centenary Hall, they unveiled photographs of prominent Abiyakuta citizens. And it's striking that all of the photographs were of professional men, either lawyers or doctors. Um, October 29th was set aside as Ogboni Day, and the state drums were brought out. Um, and that day's celebration ended with an oral play. Now, newspapers and magazines, though, didn't provide any information about the play. And this is an important point that I just want to talk about a little bit here. In the pre-colonial period, um, when the Ogboni chiefs, mostly wealthy, older men, but also a few post-menopausal women, 
formed the civilian arm of government, they wielded considerable power, including the power of life and death. Oro was effectively the enforcer of the Ogboni and carried out their death sentences. Women were not to see Oro. Whenever it was announced that Oro would be out on the streets, women had to go indoors and stay away from windows and doorways for any woman who, was, who saw Oro could be killed. The fact that Oro was performed during the celebrations reminded everyone of the continued cultural and political relevance of the Ogboni. The performance also reinforced the town's gender ideals, because it was not clear that non-menopausal women were even actually allowed to view this play. Reporters for West Africa magazine packaged Abiyakuta's centenary for readers back in England. And um, one of the things that they featured was the Alake's message to the king, where again, you know, they're He's claiming their unfailing in loyalty in the king. Um, they also spent a lot of time describing what he wore. The Alake, you know, wore a crown of solid gold, massive in design, beautiful in workmanship. Um, and as it goes on, you see that this, the description invoked a visual image of the Alake virtually wrapped in gold. His adornment and the Rolls Royce that he drove around in signaled a splendor of a magnitude that was exponential given the economic conditions of the period. This is 1930. The spectacle of nationness was also deeply gendered. Its main performers were the Alake, the colonial officials, and the chiefs who held senior or bony or military titles. The photographs unveiled in Centenary Hall featured another group of men who competed for power and authority in Nabiakuta. They were Christian, highly educated professionals, self-made men whose fortunes and status existed outside of those spaces controlled by the colonial bureaucracy or British capital. Collectively, they reflected the new social hierarchy that marginalized men who were not Christian or literate. These men were also family men with wives who were Christian literate and socially engaged. Like the Alake, they valued education for their daughters and girls in general. However, they did not envision a political role for women, whether educated or not. On multiple levels, the centenary celebrations affirmed the singularity of nation and masculinity. The first planning meeting of the Centenary Celebration Committee occurred on March 14, 1927, but women were only invited for the first time on January 9, 1930, and that was to inform them of the arrangements and to suggest that they form a committee to select women who would receive um, titles. Yet. Egbo women were completely absent from the program. <coughs> they were not among the heroes honored on the cenotaph or among the photographs in Centenary Hall. And the program didn't even mention the installation of women's titles. Women appeared only in the scenery of the celebration. They populated the crowds that traveled from Lagos, witnessed the unveiling of the cenotaph, or processed to Alumur Rock. They danced in the nighttime competitions and they enjoyed the garden parties and balls, but they remained anonymous, undifferentiated, and virtually invisible in the cultural representation of the nation. Fast forward now to the post-war period. I'm going to talk about the tax revolt. The tax revolt represented the coming together of two groups of women. The elite Christian women who belonged to the Abiyakuta Ladies Club that was led by Mrs. Ransom Kuti and women who belonged to market women's associations. Two key factors contributed to their coalition. Um, 
One was the elite women's interest in social uplift, and the other was the economic circumstances that market women faced during World War II and the years immediately afterwards. During the war, rice had been designated an essential commodity for civilian and military populations in West Africa, and Nigeria was tasked to produce rice for itself and for export to the Gambia and Sierra Leone. Given its proximity to Lagos, farmers in Abiyakuta were ordered to produce 3,000 tons of rice annually. This is when the town historically only produced about 300 tons of rice. So this was a major demand placed on the town. The Alakes agents told villagers when, I'm sorry, how much rice to produce, and colonial officials set the price at which farmers would be paid for the rice, as well as the price at which women traders could sell the rice. And this was all part of the pull-in market scheme in Nigeria. Both farmers and traders complained that these prices were too low. However, the government did not take their concerns into consideration. Instead, they put in place mechanisms to ensure that the authorities in Lagos received the required amount of rice at the control price. So, for example, farmers could only sell rice to licensed wholesale buyers. Um, and the vast majority of these were the European trading companies. There was one African, though, who was, a, who was also licensed to purchase rice. Anyone caught transporting rice without a license was subject to fines and a prison sentence. Yet, rice could be taken from farmers and traders, and that rice that was taken, they did not receive reimbursement for it. Plus, the rice still didn't end up in Lagos through the official channels. In fact, there was an extensive unofficial market that developed, and one of a, a close friend or associate of the Alake was said to be a very important figure in that unofficial market. Now, although the war ended in September of 45, at least the European part of the war, restrictions of the, on the movement of rice as well as the price freeze actually remained in place. And in fact, some restrictions remained in place as late as 1948. Um, for example, October 20th, 1945, an order was put in place that compelled truck owners to carry specific amounts of rice dependent on the road that they traveled to reach Abiyakuta. If they did not have the required amount of rice, the truck wouldn't be allowed to enter the town. Police were given official sanction to seize rice from farmers and traders. Um, November 1945, a circular was distributed that said um, Egbert Native Authority police on rice work would be held responsible for any district that failed to produce its quota of rice. Um, and I could tell you some of the more of the sort of craziness associated with this, because there were instances where villages that could not meet their quota of rice production actually purchased rice from other villages to, in order to sell as part of their own quota. So. Um, in addition, to all of what was going on around rice, there was, there was also discussion about um, raising taxes. Um, Native authority police were empowered to aggressively pursue tax collection. And one of the things I did look at in the archives were some of the criminal records actually around taxes, but also around rice um, confiscation and Gary confiscation. And we can talk more about that later. Um, but under this more aggressive policy around tax collection, men and women who could not produce a tax receipt were jailed. Um, 
Native Authority police also exposed young women's breasts for they believed that they could determine if girls were old enough to pay taxes by their breast size. So together, the struggle over rice, the tax increase, and the aggressive um, and egregious practices of Native Authority police crystallized then this convergence of market women and elite women into the formation of the Abiyakuta Women's Union and also led to their focus on the Alake's abuse of power. Oh, so the picture of some of the police here who were carrying out these tax collection efforts um, and the Alake and um, resident Schofield. Um, Schofield's um, papers are over in Rhodes House, if anyone ever wants to take a look at them, as well as this picture. He has a very nice collection of pictures there. So, with the formation of the Abiyakuta Women's Union now, one of the first things they did was to craft a constitution. And many of us joke about the amounts of constitutions um, or the proclivity of Nigerians for forming constitutions. Um, but it does, it's important to spend time looking at these constitutions and see what it is they're saying. Because what you see here is that they're expressing both the aims and objectives of this organization. And clearly the first one that really stand, the first one stands out in itself, that they want to establish and maintain unity and cooperation among all women in Egbo land. And this is important here in part because if you look at women's organizations that form, say in Lagos, for example, you didn't have coalition organizations that represented or brought together market women and elite women. So this was really unusual here to have an organization that really brought women together from across the social spectrum. Um, the other one I want to point out particularly is the um, fourth one, to cooperate with all organizations seeking and fighting genuinely and selflessly for the economic and political freedom and independence of the people. Um, I won't go into it so much here, but this concept of selfless political engagement is a particularly important one for the Ransom Kutis. Um, and we can talk a little bit about that in the Q&A. Their motto was very, you know, efficiently highlighted their political goals. Unity cooperation, selfless service, and democracy. Now, the Women's Union utilized a variety of strategies to register the women's displeasure and to call attention to their critique of colonial rule. In addition to letters and petitions to the Alake and the resident, they organized mass rallies outside of jails and courts when women were arrested for non-payment of taxes. They wore special cloths that identified them as supporters of the tax campaign. They organized vigils in front of the palace, which effectively held the Alake under siege in the palace for several days at a time. During these vigils, November 2nd, I'm sorry, November 29th through 30th and December 8th through 10th of 1947, the markets were closed and the women organized food and water so that they could sleep outside the palace. They also sang abusive songs to the Alake. Um, some of these songs questioned his virility, others accused him of theft, while others overturned Yoruba gender um, order. So as you see in the first song here that I have up here, even though he's the only man named, um, this is a general statement to men um, by the women of the union. Um, the other song um, is for me, one of the most important ones because it really highlights um, how women thought about this protest as an effort to challenge um, political and gender ideals in the town. I mentioned before how important Oro was and the fact that you know, women weren't supposed to see Oro when it came out. 
And what you have here in this song is the women subverting this icon that was primarily associated with male power and seniority. So instead of women hiding indoors when Oro was out in this song, they are saying they're performing their own Oro festival and it's men who would have to hide indoors and basically be made silent and invisible. In addition to the marches, vigils, and um, in some instances, literal undressing to express their complete rejection of Adamola's rule, they mind history, mind history. The Women's Union borrowed the slogan of the American Revolution, no taxation without representation. They argued that it was unfair for women to pay taxes if they did not have political representation. And even though they insisted that Abiyakuta's long history of taxing women independently from men was an anomaly, they nonetheless used their taxpayer status to lay claim to the evolving discussion on democracy. And they justified this demand for political participation by highlighting one of the most formidable women of the 19th century, Madame Tinubu. Um, I found this picture online. I don't know anything about it. And this may just be a rendering of Tinubu. So I will not use this in any published source. <laughs> um, but for now, it's nice to have. Now, Tinubu was evicted from Lagos in 1856 for her clashes with the British. And then she settled in Abeokuta. She was a merchant and a substantial, with a substantial trade in slaves, cotton, palm oil, and ammunition. In 1864, she was named the first Iyalode of the Egbas, a reward for her support during the Dahomean invasion of that year. Now, Tinubu did not confine herself to trade. She was a kingmaker, and she actively undermined Alake's she disliked and offered her own candidates for the throne. The creation of this title then recognized women as a political constituency, but Tinubu invested it with political power. During the tax revolt, the Women's Union used Tinubu as an effective and strategic icon. They prayed at her graveside before protests to ask for strength and protection. Um, and in fact, in many instances, when I did interviews with women, particularly in the 1980s, this was one of the things that they most recalled. Now, the women's actions made the town essentially ungovernable and the Alake's power weakened considerably by 1948 when he lost the support of the chiefs in the council as well. And here, um, Reverend Ransom Kuti played a particularly instrumental role in driving a wedge between the Alake and the chiefs on the council. That year's annual report stated that due to the women's demonstration, the Alake essentially had no choice but to abdicate and to move to another town. So, after his departure from the town, um, the, women, the Women's Union organized Thanksgiving celebrations. From July 29th to August 2nd, they organized events including um, dancing throughout the town, a Thanksgiving service at St. John's Church, and a picnic at Madame Tanubu's grave. Um, finally, as well as a lecture by the Deputy Director of Education for the Western Province. But these were actually just the prelude to the main celebration that were aptly entitled Celebration of Egba Freedom, um, and these were organized both by the Women's Union, but the Majeo Baje Society, which was an organization primarily of men, and its president was the Reverend Ransom Kuti. <coughs> the extensiveness of the program was reminiscent of the program organized during the centenary celebration. The program included, for example, drumming, 
um, in all the Ogboni houses, uh, the firing of guns by hunters, and that was on August 31st, 21st rather. On the 22nd, there was a Thanksgiving service at Centenary Hall. Um, they also, there was also an opera by members of the church. Um, there were prayers both in churches as well as in mosques. And all of these were detailed in the program that was um, created. The schedule of events reflected the religious and cultural diversity of Abiyakuta as well as the broad cross-section of groups that supported the women's union. Following the extensive celebrations and speeches, the women's union published a pamphlet that documented some of the speeches as well as photographs taken from different events. The cover had a picture of Adamola next to the title, The Fall um, of a Ruler <coughs> or the Freedom of Egbaland. Um, and part of my argument is that this pamphlet offered the women's union's own narrative of the crisis. Through the selection of texts, speeches, quotes, and photographs, readers were presented with the historical antecedents that supported their revolutionary movement. Um, as well as the immediate factors that generated it, specifically the Ayalake's abuse of power, the political marginalization of women, and, or as well as their impoverishment. All of these were brought together in a speech given by Reverend Superintendent Okay during the Thanksgiving ceremony at Centenary Hall on August 22nd. And part of what I want to take away from this quote is the role that he gives to Madame Tanubu here, particularly where he's saying that Tanubu, um, you know, Ransom Kuti was popularly known as woman leader number one of Egbaland, although I would rather call her woman leader two in view of the fact that she was only following. She wasn't establishing a precedent here. She was continuing, in a sense, a precedent already established by Tinubu. And it's important to sort of step back and think about why he foregrounded Tinubu in the way that he did. Um, I suggest that when Tinubu received the title, Yellow Day of the Egbas, in 1864, she was catapulted to the level of a national leader or national hero like Lisabi, for example, who had liberated the Egbas from Oyo imperialism. And newspaper descriptions of her funeral do account or um, recount her as a national hero. The newly incorporated title into the Egba political structure carved out important political space for Tinubu individually and for women generally. It's important to note that this was not a township title. This is a, essentially a national title because it represents the entire community. It also brought official recognition to Tinubu's activism on behalf of and for the nation. The circumstances under which this title was awarded also suggest recognition that women have a space and belong in mobilization around national issues, including war. Thus, the recognition of Tinubu's critical role in the national politics of the 1860s stand in stark contrast to her erasure during the centenary celebrations in 1930. In invoking Tinubu as the um, predecessor or ancestress of Ransom Kuti, Reverend Okay legitimated Ransom Kuti's leadership, the actions of the women's union that um, did, as he said, in less than 24 months what wavering men had failed to do in 28 years, as well as their engagement in national politics. In the post-World War II period, there was no threat of invasion comparable to that of Dahomey in the 19th century. 
However, there was a palpable fear of bloodshed in the town, and the resident at the time, John Blair, made clear that the threat of force was very seriously considered on multiple occasions. Blair's fear of a comparable Adobe um, uprising, and this was the 1918 tax revo result, revolt, rather, suggests that the similarities Reverend O'Kay drew between 1864 and 1948 were not um, just flourishes, rhetorical flourishes. Um, they were, in fact, much more literal than many people appreciated. In casting these periods as similar, Reverend Oko captured the heightened fear, tension, and brinksmanship <clears throat> that marked this historical moment. In this battle against an informal form of tyranny, an internal rather form of tyranny, Ransom Kuti was a liberator in the footsteps of both Lisabi and Tinubu. The Women's Union incorporated other political actors and thinkers as well in order to legitimate their activism. The first page of the pamphlet showed um, <coughs> a picture of Ransom Kuti, and on the other side of the picture, there were three quotes of varying lengths. And I've um, put the quotes up here for you. The first comes from Thomas Jefferson and the American Declaration of Independence. Um, the second is a quote from um, Charles James Fox, and the last is a quote from Lord Acton. The available records do not reveal the process through which these quotes were selected. However, they were not random, for the pamphlet was edited by Abiodun Aloba, a journalist who wrote for the Comet, the West African pilots and um, yeah, West African pilot and other newspapers over the course of his career. The quotes express the political ideals that guided the actions of the AWU, as well as their underlying conceptualization of state society relations. Through these quotes, the women un women's union argued that the purpose of government was to secure the well-being of the governed. Since that expectation was not met, they had an obligation to challenge the Alake's monopoly of the use and exercise of power, as well as his abuse of power. The quotes justified the women's mass rallies and vigils and demonstrated their commitment to the ideals of a secular liberal democracy. The composers of this pamphlet were no doubt aware that the authors quoted did not in theory or practice include women in their theories of democracy. Nonetheless, <coughs> in using these quotes, the women un women's union signaled that they intended for women to regain and surpass the political rights they had lost. So, what do we learn from this juxtaposition? Um, one, the tax revolt forced a radical transformation of politics in Abiyakuta and further cemented a larger process that expanded the boundary of nation from Abiyakuta to Nigeria. It also established that women had a central role to play in leading the new nation. Whereas the centenary had celebrated the male monopoly of political space and the alake as the center of political power, the tax revolt opened up politics. For the first time, Egbas could vote for members of the council, and equally important, women could vote and run for seats on the council. Um, and as I mentioned before, you know, Lagos that had elections from the 1920s, women could neither vote nor run for seats on the Legislative Council. The centenary celebrations had also championed a return to Abiyakuta's sovereign status that was revoked in 1914. However, by the end of World War II, the idea of an independent Abiyakuta had waned in light of a growing sensibility of Nigerianness. Both Ransom Kutis had played key roles in spreading the idea of Nigeria the nation, for they were founding members of the NCNC, 
the National Council of Nigeria and Cameroon, um, which was the main nationalist party um, after, uh, from 1944 to roughly 51. And um, Ransom Kuti herself had been part of a seven-member NCNC delegation that toured Nigeria before traveling to London to demand changes in the Richards Constitution of 1947. Since Ransom Kuti was a national figure, the tax revolt in Abiyakuta was much more than a local struggle. Ransom Kuti and the, Abiyakuta and the Women's Union were discussed across the length and breadth of Nigeria as newspapers reported on events in the town and published her letters. From across Nigeria, and these letters are in her files, men and women wrote to her seeking her help in creating similar women's unions. In response to this demand, Ransom Kuti and the Women's Union Executive created the Nigeria Women's Union um, and brought newly formed women's unions as well as other existing organization, organizations under its national umbrella. The women, Nigeria Women's Union and its constituent organizations brought a gender critique to both local and national developments. The organization also provided a space for women to think, plan, and agitate as constituent members of a nation defined by the colonial boundaries of Nigeria. Now, local and regional identities did not disappear. But for a brief period, the Nigerian Women's Union carved out a place for women to strategize on how best to be engaged members of a democratic Nigerian nation. And as ethnic parties came to dominate the political arena of, after the 1951 McPherson Constitution, the Nigerian Women's Union also became a place from which to critique and challenge the nationalist leaders who would take Nigeria towards independence. And I'm going to end with an image of a cloth that was um, the Nigerian Women's Union had planned to order from Germany for its members. Um, and you'll see that the statements on the cloth offer pointed critiques of um, the parties at the time. And do rem their comments are still relevant today. So. The first panel um, basically says, don't tell lies. Um, and the bottom panel says, don't take bribes. And Mrs. Kuti, um, and Bere, which signifies her as the first. She was the first um, woman to attend Abia Kuta Grammar School. But certainly, in terms of Nigerian nationalist politics of this period, she was number one. Um, and she was in the middle of um, that panel. So thank you for your patience, and I'm happy to take questions now. <laughs> Thanks so much for a wonderful